Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. All right. Tommy is about some books. One, two, one, two, three, four. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Thank you. It's kind of for both of us, because we're a team. So I average out the cheering, and I just take the median, and that's... Is that right? The median? Is that the average of the... The mean. Cosine mean. of no. the... Okay. It's okay. Welcome you don't to have Indian- to know that. Welcome to Indianapolis, Sydney McElroy. Thanks. Just me? What? Welcome everyone. Well, you might live here. Welcome probably, anyway. Some of you probably To what might be here. your hometown. <laughs> uh, we, uh, when, whenever we get to go on the road and do shows... We try to find topics for Sawbones that relate to to where we're going. And as I was looking into Indianapolis and, and stuff about the history and medical history and that kind of thing, one of the things I came across, which I realize now as I'm about to do the show, is it foolhardy to go somewhere and like kind of knock on one of their biggest corporations? Is that no. Thing to do? They love it. Is that... They love it. And knock is probably a strong no, term. It's not, probably a ce- cel- If I know you, it's probably a celebratory, nice story. Uh, we did. We actually, this really, this happened because we did this in Salt Lake City. We went to Salt Lake City, the home of, like, the country's biggest essential oil manufacturers. And I, I decided, yeah, I'm just going to talk about how bad they are. <laughs> and so... They were loving it, though, because I guess they were tired of their Facebook walls just being absolutely full of... <laughs> Multi-level <their>, marketing. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so we're going to talk about Eli Lilly. <laughs> Actually, you can see from our, like, hotel room, you can see, like, a giant Lilly building. Yeah. It's, I don't know what, I don't know which one. I assume there are many, right? Like, there's a lot. Probably a lot. Only one. But, yeah, it's really large. I don't... I guess we could go visit maybe tomorrow, or maybe not. Uh, we'll see. We'll see <laughs> if we're sort of a welcome bad. presence. This isn't bad. This is uh, like a lot of drug companies that have been around for a really long time. Occasionally, they dabbled in things uh, that are not, are not traditionally accepted as medications today, or maybe should be. I don't know. And Eli Lilly doesn't always like to talk about that part of their history, but we do, so we're going to. <laughs> Sid, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to 
call you a furniture salesman because you're really couching it. <laughs> I don't get angry letters. Like I'm not. I'm not. It's not slander or anything. It's just. A f- <laughs> <laughs> so, so as you may imagine, Eli Lilly is named for Eli Lilly. <laughs> Uh, who was a like a guy, and that was his name, Eli Lilly. <laughs> he was actually so far so good. <laughs> he wasn't born here. He was actually born in Baltimore, but he moved around a bit with his family, ending up in uh, Kentucky for a while, and then back in Indiana, where he attended uh, what was Indiana Asbury University, which is now DePaul. And uh, he. I love this part of his biography because if you read it, it says, Lily became interested in chemicals as a teen. Hey, I, could, I think a lot of us can relate to that. Sure. <laughs> All right, Eli, me too, me too. Uh, but he was really, like, he wanted to do stuff with them. He wanted to be a chemist, not just, you know, use them. And so he was on a trip with his aunt and uncle and he was, he visited this drugstore. Uh, it was called the Henry Lawrence Good Samaritan Drugstore. And he watched what the apothecary was doing there, and he got really excited about it and said, like, can I come and work here and apprentice with you for a while and learn how to do what you're doing? And they said, yeah. And so four years later, he had actually completed a full chemistry. And at the time, that would have been a pretty standard, like, training course for a pharmacist. There a lot was- of it was made up anyway. <laughs> so... <laughs> So he learned how to mix chemicals, and he also learned a lot about managing businesses and, and, and funds and that kind of thing from the guy who ran the drugstore. So he kind of apprenticed him in business management as well as in making drugs. And so he was ready to kind of go out into the world and make drugs for people, <laughs> was his plan. But he had to work for a while. He worked in Indianapolis for a while at different drugstores, you know, just working kind of like as the as the the pharmacist at the counter not really owning the operation or making new medications, just mixing and selling compounds that were already known. His uh, career got interrupted for a while because there was a war, the civil one. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so that sidetracked him for a little bit. Uh, he, had to, he had to stop pursuing chemistry, and instead he was on the union side, which is good. Um, <laughs> I say that because we were talking about the Civil War in Nashville yesterday. <laughs> and when I said that the guy was on the Union side that we were talking about, everybody was kind of like, oh, okay. All right. That's not fair to Nashville. They are very pro-Union at this point now. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> You're just saying that in Nashville, they kind of wish the Confederacy had won. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. You're just saying they kind of think the South will rise again (laughs) in the war of northern aggression, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just saying that being a West Virginian, it's nice to be back in the Union. Yeah. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. We had a great time in Nashville. A lot of great music, a lot of great food. (laughs) It's a lovely place that doesn't condone slavery at all. That's that's from me, Justin McElroy, the one who doesn't get the louder cheers. <laughs> Sydney's doing her best to even things out. I'm just saying that I. You're still just. Go, I gave you an out. Applause. You don't have to keep digging, Sid. For the North, anyway. 
So, uh, after the war, <laughs> he went back to his chemistry business. On May 10, 1876, he opened his own labs. He finally got to pursue what he had been wanting to do since his teen years when he first got so interested in chemicals. Uh, he started his own laboratory. He had a two-story building, uh, and, and he began to manufacture his own medicines. And it was called, uh, it actually just said Eli Lilly Chemist over the door. It's not like a catchy name, but then he never changed it, so I guess it worked. <laughs> <laughs> so he started out his business, and his big thing was that during the Civil War, he observed a lot of the medics using medicines and doctors using medicines that he knew weren't working um, from his chemistry training. He was like, well, that didn't do anything. That was fake. I mean, a lot of the medicine was. And so he wanted to use, he said, well, you know, I really want to make medicines that work and do something. Uh, he had good intentions. And so he started with quinine, which is a real medicine, right? He, he observed quinine is good for malaria. I want to manufacture it and sell it. And of course, quinine was used for lots of other things that it didn't necessarily treat. But he really did start off with a real medicine. And that was great. And that made some money. But not enough. And so then he started making fake medicines like everybody else. All right. And some things were just like helpful innovations. Like he was the first one to come up with like gel-coated pills and capsules that made things easier to swallow. That's good. That was good. Uh, he came up with like fruit flavorings for medicine and sugar-coating pills and that kind of thing so that it was easier for like kids to take them. So that's, uh, that's good. good. Yeah, good. I mean, good. In that it's good that you're thinking about kids taking medicine, bad in that it probably was still like opium. <laughs> right. Mother's little helper. <laughs> but, but in addition to that, he also was making a lot of the kind of like hand-rolled pills and compounds and elixirs that a lot of the other... I mean, honestly, patent medicine salesmen and, and women of the time were making. So there were a lot of, like, if you look through an Eli, Limp, Eli Lilly catalog of their medications uh, from the early years, they're not that different than a lot of the other patent medicines that he was kind of against when he first started out. One was called uh, Succus Alterans. One of the great Harry Potter spells. <laughs> Or, or it's a, or alternative juice is the other name <laughs> for it. That's very good. A, a succus is a fluid, like a, like a gastric juice is what they were referencing. Gross. I know. It's I like gross. mine better, the whimsy and everything. Uh, but he started selling that, and that was like their big, that was actually a, a bigger seller than quinine. <laughs> People like The real medicine. It was supposed to be used for, like, purifying the blood and the liver, whatever that meant. And there were a lot of things like that. Like, this is just a liver toxin. It's good for your liver. Take it. And really what it was was various herbal things in a bunch of alcohol. So it was, like, 24% alcohol. Nice. So it worked. And then, it, I mean, it had some, like, pokeweed in there. It had some burdock. It had some prickly ash, but it was mainly alcohol. And, and people loved it. And yeah. <laughs> it was very... I would think, yeah. It was very popular for... Uh, <laughs> for drinking. For syphilitic afflictions. Like sobriety. <laughs> no, like syphilis. <laughs> some... Some people with syphilis are sober, I would imagine. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, he would, uh, and then they also started to say, like, well, you know, our patients with syphilis seem to love it, and they've also let us know that it's really good for their rheumatism, and it's really good for all their skin conditions, so you can use this stuff and put it all over you if you want to at the same time for your eczema or psoriasis or whatever. It's mainly alcohol. Put it wherever you want. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> we don't care. Uh, the dose of this, by the way, was either one teaspoon three times a day or one tablespoon three times a day for two months or three months or eight months, or you keep taking it forever and at some point switch to once every other week. Just feel your way through. <laughs> Trust your gut. Whatever, whatever you think is working, it's working. <laughs> and if it's not, just take more. Sure. Uh, so that was their biggest seller. They also sold some other things, like uh, laxatives were very popular at this point in history. They're always popular, right? Everybody always loves laxatives. They sold laxatives, uh, and people loved them because right away you knew, like, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> or it didn't, and you didn't buy it. But it, they were selling cinnabase laxatives, like elixir purgans, which would work. Bark. It had cinna in it, yeah. yes. And the doses were, like... It's funny because they have different doses based on, do you want it to just, like... How busy is your schedule? <laughs> do you need to be regular? Do you need a cleaning? <laughs> or do you want it coming out both ends? <laughs> you just build up. you need up. an excuse to finish your book? <laughs> Are you... Are you hiding from your wife and children in the bathroom for a while to get a break? Is that what that, is that, what that meant? What's the next thing you're uh -huh. going to... Uh, they also sold all kinds of pills with ingredients that at the time would have been very common. You found belladonna, morphine, uh, cocaine, strychnine, oh. just a whole catalog full of... Mainly, these were the active ingredients in varying amounts mixed together in some alcohol <laughs> and named something that sounded effective. And, and that was mainly the catalog. And again, like this is, not, this is not a strange thing for a drug company at the time to have these kinds of things in their, you know, in their library. It was included, all of these things were included in the United States Pharmacopeia at the time as legitimate drugs that were used for various afflictions. And among them, another that I haven't mentioned, was cannabis. Cannabis was a very popular drug. At That's the legal here, right? <laughs> oh, crap. It's a joke. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> I only do Don't cocaine. worry, we didn't fly anywhere. We're just driving. Yeah, we're just driving in a bus. It's fine. Everything's legal in a bus. <laughs> Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to... Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool. Think of it as the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just 
take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts. And that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? pre-prepared all I got in two minutes I'm eating filet mignon that sounds delicious yeah it sounds delicious and you can give these a try and it's not just these meals we're talking pancakes smoothies they got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious and the meals you just eat and eat there's no prepping cooking or cleanup get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week you're going to get exactly what you want no surprises here uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Now, the thing about this, this cannabis part of the story, cannabis is a big part of the Eli Lilly story, but for some reason... Eli Lilly representatives don't like to talk about it. <laughs> they don't like to go over it. Like, if you read, and I've read now several accounts of the history of Eli Lilly, you won't find any mention of their cannabis operations in the early years. Uh, and this is strange, because, again, this wasn't just them. Like, all the major pharmaceutical companies were also selling weed alongside all their other you know, medicines or not medicines that they were selling. But this has become like an obsession and a fascination for someone in particular. I, this is how I found this story. This gentleman named Fred Finninger, who's a former attorney who started working as an Eli Lilly diversification analyst, whatever that means. And he holds a bunch of shares in Eli Lilly. And he was always vehemently anti-drug and then he knew somebody who used marijuana to manage their pain, and he saw that it was really effective. And so now he's become very pro-marijuana. Now, he'll tell you he doesn't use it. He just wants it to be a medicine that everybody else can use if they need it. Wink. And, Wink. <laughs> and, uh, and it's funny, because if you read descriptions, everything I read kept referring to him as like, when you see him, he's a distinguished gentleman in a blue blazer, and he's very much a Marion County Republican. We, th I, we thought y'all might no, know what that, that meant. Yeah. 
but he really wants Eli Lilly to talk about how they loved weed. And <laughs> <laughs> it's like like a friend you went to college with that smoked every day, and you try to get him to talk about it later in front of their kids. It's like that's not really me anymore. I'm I'm not Blazy Bob. I'm just Robert, the father of Rebecca and Stephen. So this this story largely he has dug up and unearthed and sh- and shared with the world just because he really wants everybody to know. Like I own shares in Eli Lilly, and they used to love pot. <laughs> and it's true at in. In the late 1800s, when everybody else was also on the cannabis bus and selling it for a variety of things. Like I said, it was, it was in the pharmacopoeia of the United States. You could find listed marijuana for gout, rheumatism, tetanus, uh, cholera, convulsions, hysteria, hemorrhage, whatever, pain, anything. It was sold and used for everything. And so it was a legitimate medication. And there was a particular member of the Eli Lilly uh, company that was really interested in all the things that it can do and thought, you know what, this could be like a big, a big part of our business. You know, we're, we've got the quinine. Good. We got a bunch of fake stuff. That's good. Love it. People love that. It's all in alcohol, but we need to sell more cannabis products. Um, and right as world war one occurred, it, be- it became really difficult to import cannabis, which is what a lot of people were doing. They were importing cannabis from outside the U S and it became really difficult. And so they started to think, well, instead of importing it, why don't we just start growing our own? We can grow marijuana. Uh, we got the funds. That's what you need, right? You need the science. You got to know how to grow some weed. And you need the money to, like, have the land, like, have an operation. And so, first, in 1907, you can find that the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, which was the nation's first pharmacy school, uh, approved a doctoral thesis that was called the comparative physiological effects of several varieties of cannabis sativa. And it was authored by Eli Lilly, grandson of Eli Lilly, (laughs) who was fascinated and, and, I mean, went about in a very scientific way to find a new, better strain of marijuana that he could grow, like a homegrown, American, 100% made in the USA. (laughs) Love that. So important. Cannabis that they could grow and start making medications out of and sell since it was getting so cumbersome to import stuff. And so in 1912, the Eli Lilly Corporation bought a ton of land. It was like a farm that the family used to own back in in Greenfield. He bought bought a bunch of land in Greenfield and turned it into fields of marijuana. (laughs) Hence the name that resides this day. There is a huge, like, stucco, it's like a Spanish-style kind of building there at the what was called Lily Farms, <laughs> like, beautiful, like, red tile and all this, that where they would, like, house the operations right next to the farms where they were growing all of the marijuana. Um, and you can still, by the way, like, that building still stands. I don't think there is any mention of the fact that this used to be where we grew a ton of weed, but it is there. And they started, like, cultivating these different things. They actually worked with another corporation, Park Davis, which was the precursor to Pfizer. Hmm. So, basically, Pfizer and Eli Lilly got together and grew great weed. A very chill time. A very chill time in American history. Yeah. And, and like, by, by their 1927 Lilly catalog of all their products and everything they were selling, they had, like, 23 different 
products based on cannabis that they had grown on their farms and were selling for all kinds of different things. So it was a huge part of their business. They'd invested a ton of time and money and science and effort and belief into, you know, getting cannabis to the people. And uh, you could get, so it was $6 a pint, which is a wild way, by the way. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know anybody who sells cannabis by the pint. But for $6 a pint, you could get some cannabis sativa, which was way cheaper than the imported cannabis that they were bringing in before. So it was also, it was out-competing the imported cannabis that was still coming into the country. Um, and it, and uh, in the early 1900s, they went on to cultivate cannabis at a whole other, they bought Connor Prairie. And like, so they had like three, they had like three different locations where they were selling their own strain of cannabis and, and, like, you know, selling all these drugs. And it was great for a very short period of time. Oh, no, Sid. I know, I know. And which is the story. You had to I mean, see this coming, though. And this story, I mean, we're talking about Eli Lilly because we're here, but this would be the same for any of these major companies or even smaller companies and farms and, and chemists and drug manufacturers at the time were finding new, better ways to grow cannabis and which strains were good for what and what strength and how best to deliver it, you know, different, not just smoking, other ways to, to take in cannabis. They were doing all this and everybody got Hi. freaked out about <laughs> marijuana. Right. Yeah, It was too. around the same time, well, no, they did. It was around the same time as prohibition. Everybody was really upset about alcohol and people started to get really nervous about everybody getting high, and you started to see that, I mean, this is kind of like, we're talking about like reefer madness, kind of like people getting all worried, like what's it gonna do? Everybody's taking cannabis, I, I don't know. And you started to see the government respond with more regulations, and in 1937, they passed the Marijuana Tax Act, which made it so expensive to grow and produce and sell any of these cannabis-based products, that they just kind of abandoned it because it just wasn't, I mean, you couldn't make money. The government doesn't want you to have fun. There it is, folks. I mean, that is true. <laughs> so at that point, Lily, they just had to make the financial decision like, well, this is, you know, we have all that, we've invested all this, but there's no way we can possibly make money. So they shut down the operation. They stopped growing marijuana. I think Lily Farms became an animal health company, Elanco, Elanco, Elanco. Uh, and so that is where that, that used to be, where the marijuana fields were. No more. I assume. I don't know what they're doing I don't know. <laughs> we haven't been there. Maybe look around. I don't know. They can't have gotten all of it, right? <laughs> uh, of course, Eli Lilly, the company, did fine for itself because <laughs> around the same time that, unfortunately, cannabis operations were shut down, uh, there had also been a lot of pressure on bigger pharmaceutical companies to start doing some science <laughs> uh. and like make medicine that works. <laughs> and especially from the American Medical Association, the AMA started to put pressure on, you know, through their lobbying with the government, like, hey, look, they're just selling all this cocaine. And <laughs> like, that's great. People love it. But there's probably other things. <laughs> <laughs> there may be a downside that we haven't even seen. So at that point, Eli Lilly hired their first, like, researcher. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, does it work? Hold on. Let me back up. Uh, so, and at that point, they started to... 
<laughs> they started, at like, some point they had a conversation. Hey, does any of this work? How would I know? So, so they started to actually like research medications that one of the first things they did was actually partner with two scientists from the University of Toronto, Bantine and Best, who had just started to synthesize this pancreatic extract that was doing wonders for diabetic patients because it was insulin. And so... Some fans, all right. <laughs> Love that stuff. You know what is... It's just occurring to me... Man, I should really think about these things ahead of time. The researcher, the first researcher they hired was named George Henry Alexander Close. Oh. Clows? Yeah. Is that Close, right? Clues? 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 Is that? Like Blue's Clues. Yes, oh, thank clues? you. Clues? Is that? That's what we were same? trying to ascertain, whether or not it was That's like Blue's Clues. That's gotta be, right? That'd be the same cat, the right? That we're sitting in. But maybe not. Are there a lot of clues running around? You know what? We can't do this. You're not Wikipedia. You paid to be here. I should have Wikipedia'd it. We'll get back to you. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> I'll, you want me to Google it while you finish the show? <laughs> no, it's got to be right. Let's anyway. go with it. I'll get it in editing. <laughs> Don't tell anybody who wasn't here tonight. Right. When you listen to this at home, there'll be a very smart-sounding part here. <laughs> and? Uh, anyway, so they partnered with, the, with Bantine and Best from Toronto, and they started producing insulin, which obviously is a real medication that works, should be a lot more affordable. Uh, Eli Lilly. It's not just their fault, but, you know, them too. Uh, and they started making that. And then after that, in the 40s, when penicillin was discovered, they were part of the first companies that started manufacturing penicillin. And obviously, these were real medicines that really helped people and really legitimized them as a, as a force. And I don't think I need to tell you that Eli Lilly is obviously a very big drug company now that sells, still sells Humulin and they sell Prozac and all kinds of other medications that you've heard of. Um, and they are the largest corporation in Indiana, but they're also the largest charitable benefactor. So. It's the least we can expect from capitalism, but okay, that's good. <laughs> Just admit that you used to sell a lot of weed. That's all we're asking. Just say it. I mean, it is worth noting that, as I said, like, the insulin part of this, we've, we've had this insulin since, like, the 30s, guys. Like, it doesn't have to be this expensive. We've, you know, we've known about it for a long time. Just saying. It's not new. But this cannabis story, I felt like it was important to share with everyone. <laughs> uh, because, one, there was a long time where we were actually trying to figure out what what can we do with cannabis as a legitimate medicine? And then we stopped because we made it a Schedule One drug that we can't do anything with because once it's Schedule One, you can't, you can't give it to people because that would be unethical. So we can't do any good experiments to see what all it can do for people. But if we could reschedule it, then we could. And then we would know what it would do. And then sure. we could prescribe Res it for the things that it works for. Reschedule it doesn't look as good on a bumper sticker. We agree. Well, I mean... Science is where it starts. The research is the first part, which is what kindly Fred Fenninger said when he introduced at the annual shareholders meeting of Eli Lilly last year <laughs> a resolution to, one, 
He just wanted everybody to recognize the history of Eli Lilly growing lots of weed. <laughs> and Can we just it. all admit that we did just used to grow a lot of weed? I did, that's all my resolution. That's really, though. he stood up at the shareholders meeting and just read the history. I just want you all to know. <laughs> and then two, he said, and I would ask as a shareholder, could you lobby the government to reschedule marijuana so that Eli Lilly can continue its research in this area and start selling it again? And apparently it was voted down. Um, oh, well, hey, we'll get him next year. Hey, maybe next year. Maybe next year, folks. Maybe there's next always next year. Hey, thank you so much for joining us here, Indianapolis. Uh, there's, there is, uh, we, we owe a great debt to the taxpayers for the use of their song medicines as the intro and outro of our program. Thank you to uh, Paul Saborn for all of his assistance here this evening. Uh, and uh, we are going to be back in a moment with my brother, my brother, and me. There's going to be a brief intermission, at which point you can help yourself to the restroom. Um, uh, but but uh, please do that. Please use the bathroom. Please buy some stuff. And uh, please buy a book on Amazon. It's called The Solomon's Book. That is going to do it for us this week. So until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Fund.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.